would you like to turn to the book of John and chapter 20? And we're going to, well, I'm going to read, you can listen, uh, the whole of the chapter before uh, starting to unpack it a little bit. And you should be able to follow it on the screen uh, behind me there if you don't have a Bible with you, so please don't worry. You should be able to see the scriptures there. Here we go. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken away, uh, they've taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them um, that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house Again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting 
and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not which are not recorded in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name Uh, awesome (laughs) isn't it wonderful it's great to um, celebrate Easter a couple of weeks ago and for us as a church there was the neat convenience of us meeting for an all together anyway because it was the uh, the last Sunday of a month, so three congregations um, getting together to worship. Um, we had uh, a dramatic kind of representation of the gospel. Uh, we had bless and preaching. Just wonderful, just our way of just wanting to make a little bit more of it than sometimes we have done in the past. Um, and I suppose I wanted to take a little bit more time to do the same. Um, for us, the resurrection of Jesus is something to celebrate. Uh, it's something to enjoy. It's something to relish. Um, we, in Easter itself, and looking at passages like this, uh, we're recognising the most important weekend in history. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, something absolutely outstanding was discovered which has changed history since. That's why we meet now and not on a Saturday, because this was the day when it, was, it became apparent to the disciples and many others that Jesus um, was raised to new life. So it's something to celebrate. It's something, the resurrection of Jesus is something um, that is central to, to who we are and, and what we believe. If you, just, you might want to keep a finger, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, Just turning there for a moment to the first few verses of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So this quick recap of things that are of first importance are the death, burial and resurrection and all those appearances of Jesus. This good news is based in reality, not fable. It's true. It's a real historical event. It's not just true for me or possibly true for you in the way that truth can so often be spoken about um, in today's day and age. If someone might admire your uh, belief system, but they can't kind of really agree with it so they'll say something like well I'm, I'm glad that's true for you as if truth is a very flexible malleable uh, changeable commodity and you can pick off the shelf what version of truth both kind of best fits 
your lifestyle and your aspirations and your hopes and so on. Oh, well, that, that works for me, so I'm, I'm using that at the moment. Well, that's the way that the world thinks. But this is not just true for me, true for you, true in a, in a vague way. It's not just a spiritual principle. And there can be those who've called themselves Christians down through the age who just regard it as an idea. The, the, the resurrection principle, the, the notion that something good can come out of something horrific, that, that new life can spring up in an unexpected place. And you press them, but yes, it, it is built on something that is true. The resurrection really happened. Well, it doesn't really matter whether it happened or not, even some might say. It's more just the idea, the, the principle that it represents. Absolute rubbish. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, this time verse 14, if I can even find it myself. If Christ has not been raised, writes Paul, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. doesn't just sound like an idea. More than that, we have found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised, uh, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, uh, we are to be pitied more than all men. Everything in regard of our faith rests on the resurrection. If it happened, it shapes who we are and what we believe. If it didn't happen, we're, we're not to be admired. We're not to be thought, well, you know, I don't really believe what they believe, but you know, there's some attractive qualities to the Christian lifestyle. No, we're to be pitied more than all, ever, all others if Jesus didn't raise up from the tomb, if God didn't raise him from uh, the tomb. And what we see in this passage in John chapter 20 um, is people discovering for themselves men and women who began the day or began the weekend in the dark, totally devastated, distraught, fearful, and kind of overshadowed. Um, that's how they began, but then they see and believe. And that runs right the way through the passage. So first of all, the, the other disciple, uh, the one that Jesus loved, um, who is thought to be the John who wrote this gospel, writing about himself, in verse 8, he says, finally, the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. What did he see? Well, he saw the strips of linen lying there. He saw the burial cloth. He saw that they were folded and separate. Um, he then realized this is no grave robbery. Um, something's happened here more remarkable. And it says he saw and believed, perhaps without understanding, but faith came. Then verse 18, Mary encounters the risen Jesus and says, I have seen the Lord. The disciples then encounter the risen Jesus and in verse 25 they report 
We have seen the Lord. And then Thomas later on sees the Lord and says, my Lord and my God. It's a wonderful passage. It's showing us the the transformation that takes place uh, in these people shows the difference that the resurrection uh, made in their lives and we're going to to look at that because well, for some here you may think the resurrection is an idle tale it's nonsense it's to be consigned to the periphery no it's right at the centre um, so let's look again let's look afresh at this evidence you may believe the resurrection but there's a, there's a risk that we don't actually then live in the light of it um, that we would assent to it but the significance it seems to it could be lost on us if we're not uh, careful so what difference does it make how do we live in the light of it we're going to look at Mary's story we're going to look at the disciples story and we're going to look at Thomas story to see where they were what they were experiencing and what difference it made to them when they encountered the risen Jesus and believed. We see Mary's story. She is grieving. She's gone to the tomb at the earliest opportunity, through tears, no doubt, to do as much as she can somehow to afford to Jesus' body the respect that was lacking in his death. How is she going to move the stone? I don't know. But she's gone there, and we know from the other gospel accounts, she's gone there with other women, and she's gone to anoint Jesus' body with spices, um, to bring fragrance, to bring some preservation, um, as was the custom of the day. Coupled with her grief then is the massive shock that the tomb is empty, that the stone has been rolled away. And this leads to an even heavier burden of sadness. There are a few uh, telltale signs in these first few verses of, of John chapter 20. There's lots of running panic stations, quick, got to do something. She's also, Mary in particular, just keeps repeating herself. She's encountered the empty tomb. She, she, she draws the conclusion that must have seemed very logical at the time because it wasn't unheard of, or, or someone has snatched the body. Maybe they, that, maybe they are grave robbers, maybe that's uh, the Jewish authorities for some reason, but they... Have, have taken his body. And so she says in, in verse, um, well, she says in verse 2, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Um, in verse 13, she's asked why she's crying. Well, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. Um, and then in verse 15, asked again the same question. And sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. She's, she's kind of locked on. She can't shift this 
trauma from her mind. And obviously, um, she is crying as well. The sort of tears that are loud and uncontrolled, that are wailing. She is asked a few times, why are you crying? She explains. So just uncontrollable tears. And then after all the running around, she's then immobilized. She's rooted to the spot. Peter and the other disciple, um, on the basis of what she says, uh, run to the tomb. Uh, Obviously then she must follow again and return to the tomb herself because it says in verse 10, after those two disciples have investigated, they went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb. She's not going anywhere. What's the point in going home? What's the point in doing this? What's the point in going there? What's the point? He's gone. I don't even know where he is now. The tomb's empty. Um, It's an absolute earthquake for her. And she's not moving on. Now I think that experience is unique to Mary. What must that have been like? To have encountered Jesus in the flesh been delivered from seven demons we're told elsewhere life totally transformed she's following him she sits at his feet she's eager to listen and and then as they go up to jerusalem and and the situation goes from um, hostile to to execution she watches as he dies on the cross his body laid in the tomb the hope of the world the light of the world. She can't press fast forward. She can't read on further in her New Testament at this point. What was that like for her to go through? However, obviously, in just looking at what she experienced, there's some connection, isn't there? We too experience uh, grief. We experience loss. And we could identify with those times if that has been the case for you. And that could be bereavement, you've lost someone, or other forms of, of loss, things that you had, had so hoped in that then just have, have gone, they've vanished. We can experience numbness, being physically drained, unstoppable tears, deciding just to keep running be super busy because I don't really want to think about what's just happened or then just stop lonely or, or apathetic what is, what is the point? it doesn't really seem to matter everything seems a bit trivial now in comparison to what has just taken place loads of questions and perhaps in Mary's case too can't sleep why was she up so early on the first day of the week? Um, when it was still dark. What had woken her? Had she got to sleep? The Sabbath was over. Right now she's able to go. Uh, We can experience that. Living in the light of the resurrection does not mean that we experience no loss, no sadness, and no tears. Uh, Just reading this week, in fact I'm meant to bring it with me, but it might be in my bag, uh, the book uh, A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis and he's just I think initially for his own benefit he was just writing down his experience of grief he said I I didn't realise it would feel so much like fear it's not fear 
but the physical sensation of just constant fluttering, of, of constant restlessness. Um, and I want people around, but I don't want them to talk to me. I, I, I want some company, but I don't want to talk about this, that and the other. I don't quite know how to handle company, but I don't want to be without it either. He's just honestly opening up in a small pamphlet, really. Experiences for him, a Christian, experiencing the loss of a loved one. We don't get, we're not immunized to that. Believing Jesus and living in the light of the resurrection doesn't mean we'll never experience, we'll never experience what Mary experienced precisely, but of course we know what it's like to grieve, or we will do. So what difference does the resurrection make? And what broke through Mary's grief? It's remarkable really because a conversation with angels doesn't break through. And she must recognise that they're angels, not only because of how it's uh, recorded, but she's kind of said, I don't, know, I don't know where they have taken him. Otherwise, she said, I don't know, well, where have you taken him? Jesus turns up in his, new, in his renewed body have you taken him away, she says. But when she's talking to the angels, she's saying, well, I don't know where they've taken him. So she recognises there is a difference here. I'm, I'm speaking to angels. She's still just locked in on, on this all-consuming grief, however. Um, and Jesus appears and begins to speak to her. Woman, why are you crying? Even that, now maybe she's crying. Maybe she's, she's not even looked up. She's just seen the figure of a person and she's just made an assumption. I don't know him. He's probably the gardener. And can't he see that I'm really going through it right now? Why are you crying? Um, well, he's not in the... T- I don't know where they've taken him. I don't know where he is. So what breaks through her grief? Firstly, Jesus calls her name. Mary. And in John chapter 10, verses 3 3 to 5, Jesus teaching there about being the shepherd. He says, The watchman opens the gate for him, the shepherd, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. They'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognise a stranger's voice. This might, out of the corner of our eye, just appear to be a stranger. But now that he's speaking to her, and now that he's calling her by name, he knows this is no stranger. This is my Lord. This is tender, this is gentle, this is personal. She's not alone. Jesus is, is... is gentle with her. He doesn't just jump out of a bush and say, it's me. He says, woman, why are you crying? She's kind of given time to come around to the fact it's him. And the fact that he knows her and has called her, she is not alone. Secondly, not only does Jesus call her name, but Jesus commissions her for purpose. Go and witness to the others. This is a time for joy and sharing good news. As it were, Jesus is saying, don't clutch hold of me as if I'm about to disappear. I am returning to the Father. That process has begun. But I'm not about to disappear once and for all. And uh, I want you to go and share. I've, I've got a purpose for, for you. 
go and share. So, so from this grief, what breaks through, what makes the difference for her, what liberates her is knowing that Jesus has called her name and has commissioned her for purpose. Whether she was maybe thinking, well, what's the point now? Jesus is saying, Mary, there is a point. On your feet. It's time for action. So that's Mary's story. Living in light of the resurrection. What's about the disciples' story? Um, they are living, I'm sure with grief as well, but what we're told mostly is they are living in fear. They are hiding out. So on the evening of that first day, we're told in verse 19, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, they are hiding out. They're lying low. The rulers have just killed their master. So what about us? They would be thinking. They were perhaps more easily identifiable as his followers when when, when Peter um, had gone into the courtyard uh, as Jesus is being tried, a number of times people are saying, weren't you with him? Aren't you one of his followers? They could recognise that he'd been with Jesus. So the, the, the doors are locked, they are wary. I mean, again, you think, how can we know what it was like for them to go through this? But hearing noises, people passing by on the outside, the doors locked who's coming, are they coming now, when are they going to come for us, because if they could get rid of Jesus it's going to be easier for them to get rid of us as well so seeking safety in numbers, they're together but they're essentially a small vulnerable group or they're regarding themselves in that way this is a very private time and there is this uh, a climate or pervading attitude of, of fear. They are scared. Maybe they're ashamed as well because they know that in Jesus' darkest hour they abandoned him um, for fear. Now by this point they have heard Mary's report. I've seen the Lord. But it's had no impact on them. This fearful atmosphere is holding sway. So again, we can think, well, we will never know what that was like to, to live through. This is obviously talking of experience that is u- unique to them. But we obviously know something of what it is to experience opposition and fear. Fear that doesn't even have to be Rational, but a constant worry of, of what if. So living in the light of the resurrection doesn't guarantee success, doesn't mean that there'll be no setbacks, um, that there's, there'll never be anything that puzzles us, never be anything that would appear to, to thwart uh, good. We know, therefore, something of, of fear. That could be fear of the dark. They were in the dark. could be fear of strange noises. I wonder what they were hearing as they were hiding away. Fear of the future. What is going to happen now? Jesus is not with us. A fear of the unknown. A fear of man. We've seen what they did to him. So what's going to happen 
to us a fear of getting hurt, a fear of failing. Well, we failed at that key time. How do we know we're not going to just muck it up again? A fear of evil forces. He's the son of God, and yet it would appear that evil has triumphed over him. So, a fear of, of evil. And ultimately, a fear of death. And it's possible for us to know that at different times in different ways or to experience fear. It's possible also for a community, a believing Christian community, to become shaped by fear. Look at these disciples. They are faithful. They are loyal. They're staying together. They're in fellowship with one another. Maybe even they are praying as they are tucked away behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. So something to commend them, but they're, they're imprisoned really by their own fearful choices. No one is keeping them there, but they've decided to lock the door. That's it. We're staying put. Why? We are scared. So it's, they're fearful. There's a, a lack of joy. They're squashed down. And we can, of course, we can say, it's understandable. It is understandable when people like us when people like you, when people like me experience fear and it starts to hold sway, we start to make choices based on fear rather than faith becomes restricted. We might be praying, but it's like we're in a locked room and we're not quite sure how anything can possibly change this dreadful circumstance we're in. It's understandable, but it's not what God had in mind for us when he rose Christ from the dead. The resurrection makes a difference. What makes a difference? What breaks through their fear? Obviously, Jesus appears to him, appears to them behind the locked door. He has a new resurrection body, but physical barriers are no obstacle to him. He appears in the room. What breaks through their fear? What breaks through our fear? First of all, he, he declares, he pronounces peace. Which could initially just sound like an ordinary greeting. Hi, shalom, peace. But I think John records it and attention is drawn to it because they realise it has much more profound meaning than that. They had failed. They had abandoned Jesus and they didn't understand. They had ignored what Mary has said. Oh, It just didn't register for them. But he appeared. And the awesome thing then is that they are not condemned. In Isaiah 42 it speaks of a a bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. He comes back and he restores. And he restores them by, by pronouncing there's peace. There's peace between you and me. This is an experience of wonderful grace and forgiveness. So of course they're overjoyed to see him but that's 
That's how they know. Grace and peace and, and forgiveness, that's what he's declared. And he also declares or pronounces a promise. It says, Jesus breathed, received the Spirit. And it's, I take that to mean that he was enacting what was soon to come or who was soon to come, that they would receive uh, the Holy Spirit. It says in, uh, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, uh, and so on. Fear is, is dealt with by this giving of peace and also by what's to come in the giving of the Holy Spirit. So they are transformed, living in the light of the resurrection. They go on to say in verse 25, we've seen the Lord. They were overjoyed. All that fear that had kept them uh, locked up and tucked away, they now kind of erupt with the joy of realising that Jesus is alive. And sometimes when we, um, when we experience receiving the Spirit or to observe when other people are being impacted by God, when they're being prayed for, uh, sometimes, witnessed it in the past, that they start to laugh. Um, a, a, a holy joy comes um, as the risen Saviour looks to bless by his Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, in this passage, they still stay locked away. When the Spirit comes, they go from being in the room, praying. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, the doors come open and they realise, oh, we're no longer in this small little room. We're in a massive city. And there's loads of people. And their witness comes out. They are then um, declaring a message of forgiveness which they themselves have received. So that's the disciples' story. And thirdly then, we see uh, Thomas' story. If Mary's story focused on her grief and the disciples' story focused on their fear, for Thomas, his story focuses on doubt. Maybe Thomas gets a slightly hard rap for being called Doubting Thomas. Um, he was loyal, friend of Jesus. He was honest, if sometimes pessimistic and a bit bleak. And he's not very different from the other disciples. They didn't believe without seeing. Uh, they didn't believe when Mary told them. And now Thomas isn't believing when the disciples are saying to them, we've seen the Lord. But having said that, there is a stubbornness in Thomas's reaction. He's not saying, well, I, I, I'd like to believe. I, I can hear what you're saying, but I'm just trying to work it out and I feel kind of pulled this way and then that way. He's not, in that sense, he's not wrestling with unbelief. He's made a, a decision. Unless my conditions are met, I will not believe, is his stance. And again, this is Thomas's story. It's unique to him. What must it have been like to see Jesus killed, to hear rumour that he's risen from the dead, 
But to then go for a full week without encountering Jesus himself. What was that week like when his friends are all overjoyed and Mary is kind of back on the scene and really involved and he said, well, I'm just not a part of this. I haven't seen what's going on. And so unique to him, yes, but we can experience times when it seems like, well, nothing much is happening for me. A whole week has passed since they met with God. And sometimes, rather than grief or fear, cynicism can hold sway. Living in the light of the resurrection doesn't mean there are, there are no more doubts, there's nothing that should disappoint us and cause us to scratch our heads. Um, uh, and we don't want to be disappointed. And so sometimes deciding, I've just got to cope with the way things are, I've, I've just got to cope with the lot that has been given to me, uh, feels preferable. It, it, I can stay in control. And actually, sometimes it feels easier to resist faith. I don't really want to feel like an outsider, but I kind of resent those who look like insiders, so I don't want to be an insider either, so I'll just stay put. Um, and that's how, perhaps, um, he was processing this time for himself. Uh, sometimes we don't immediately celebrate others' good, good, good news, even if we say with our mouths, that's great for you. On the inside, we're thinking, girl, well, it hasn't happened for me. Um, Others might think that we're hard and negative. We think we're just trying to stay level. I don't want to go on some massive roller coaster of, hey, oh, hey. I just want to know what I'm dealing with. So, actually, it's sometimes easier to choose cynicism. There are things that, by grace and by faith, don't change. And we learn and we persevere and we believe, yes, one day this will all be resolved. It, it may not be right now. But if that becomes almost the set position, the set attitude, whatever is happening, um, then we're, we're giving sway to cynicism. We're, we're saying that's the safer way to live. Um, I'm not quite sure I can trust good news. So it's understandable that that's perhaps how Thomas responded. It's understandable that sometimes how we can uh, respond in similar situations where we feel like we're on the outside looking in when things haven't worked out for us as we'd hoped, when, when everything seems to be going much better for others. Um, it's understandable, but it's not what God had in mind for us when he, wrote, when he lifted Christ from the dead. The resurrection makes a difference. So what broke through Thomas's unbelief. Well, firstly, Jesus meets him where he is at, invites him to survey his wounds. Actually, graciously, Jesus comes and offers to uh, meet all his conditions. Have a look. Put your hand here. Can you see? Put your hand here as well. It's okay. Interestingly, there's also a rebuke and a command stop doubting and believe so Jesus does 
meet us where we're at. But where unbelief is concerned, he says, stop. Review the evidence. Come back to the evidence. Come and look again. And, and stop. Don't decide you're going to stay in doubts. There are times when we might be wrestling with questions and things that don't add up for us. But that doesn't mean we, we want to live there. Interestingly, there's, there's no indication from the text that Thomas needed to touch and needed to look in close detail and put his hand in the side. He just recognises and, I believe, repents. Oh, my Lord, uh, my, my Lord and my God. He's liberated. He's set free. The resurrection makes a massive difference for him. So what about us? Are we living in the light of the resurrection? Are we... Uh, are we believing? It could, if we left it there, just have a slightly hollow feeling to it. Because we're looking at all these disciples, Mary, the others, and then Thomas, and they did see. They saw Jesus. And we don't. We're not eyewitnesses to the resurrection. We weren't there. And for some, possibly, it sounds like nonsense. But then what could account for the change that took place in their lives? Or maybe we believe, but it's just lost, we've lost some revelation about its significance. Then comes the punchline to the whole chapter and the punchline to the whole book. The punchline to the whole chapter is this. Verse 29, Jesus told them, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We can read that passage and think, well, they were so blessed they got to see the risen Jesus. Wow! I mean, that's awesome. The greater blessing was theirs, And we're kind of following in the slipstream uh, a second-rate believer. Jesus is saying, yes, they're blessed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And in a sense, there is a guy in this passage who fits that bill. If we went back to verse 8, we'd see that the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, saw and believed. What did he see? He saw the evidence that Jesus was no longer dead in the tomb. He believed before he saw Jesus with his own eyes. Is he saying that to be boastful? Say, look at me, aren't I special? I'm the one that Jesus loved and I'm the one who believed. At the earliest opportunity, uh, let let me write a long book to tell you about my experience. Is he saying it in a boastful way? No. He realizes that his experience is an example of what God will do for many other people. So the punchline to the whole book, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the punchline. That's the wonderful good news. We have the 
the privilege and the blessing of receiving life in his name, which means that when we feel very alone and grieving, we have a saviour who comes to us and says our name. A shepherd who calls us by name and says, follow me. I have called you to purpose. So go, go and tell this good news. And wow, we know him. He's at work in us. In our, in our fear and our worry about our failures or what the future might hold, we have a saviour who comes to us and says, peace to you. There's peace between us. You failed me, but I love you and I died for you so that I might forgive you so that you might still be my disciple. Come, the mission goes on. So you're going to be involved and you're not just going to go on your own effort. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm not going to just abandon you to try and work this out on yourself. Look, I'm, I'm giving you myself I'm giving you my word and I'm giving you my Holy Spirit that you might be involved in uh, declaring to others the message of forgiveness that you've received yourself. It's, it's phenomenal. It's wonderful. He does it. We can never say we have, we've seen it all, we've done it all, we understand it all, we're growing all the time and he um, invites us to continue to receive Uh, the Spirit to help us in our weaknesses and that we might not give way to fear and we have a Saviour who meets us where we are at. That might mean needing to hear him say, repent, stop unbelieving and be believing. Okay, but it doesn't come with a heavy club comes with a a saviour who comes and he stands in our midst and he says Thomas let's have some time see what's happened see see what's real and now live in the light of what is actually real